Welcome to Oak and Adam, unfiltered conversations about nature, philosophy, spirituality, and life between a druid and an atheist. I'm Brian, a druid. And I'm Eric, an atheist. Welcome to Oak and Adam. All right. Well, welcome. Welcome. So, I'm Brian. I am a practicing druid and conservationist. Um, some of you might know me from the founder of Stewards of Browns Woods, where I spent an obscene amount of time creating a deep and meaningful relationship with honeysuckle right before I kill it. <laughs> <laughs> and my name is Eric Burson. I am a avid photographer and conservationist photographer uh, and, and spent a lot of time uh, as far as wildlife photography to nature photography to help connect audiences to nature. Um, I am a atheist as well. And then and as far as my approach and, uh, and thinking behind as far as nature and how I view nature. And it's really an appreciation from that standpoint. It's helped me connect myself further. Um, and we can, we'll dive into that a little bit more deeper, but, uh, I'm very, you know, with, with over the years, it's been a very fun, evolving journey uh, in, in that world with photography as well as uh, philosophical reflection that it seems like that when you have removed religion away from it, it's been, it's been an interesting introspective journey from that standpoint. So how would you define religion? Religion to me is a is a very structured belief system, right? Where, and it's, you know, obviously we can go into like organized religion. So I grew up Methodist. I grew up in the Methodist church. I was confirmed, all that fun stuff and got the Bible and everything, right? To me, it's, and it's an adherence to those set of principles, to those stories being told and the lessons to be told within that, within the Bible, within the various books, right? Um, to me, religion is structured without change, without the willingness to seek understanding because it's all been defined in front of you. So therefore, you bend your world to that, to that mindset versus you going into the world to gain further knowledge. So how did you go from Methodist to atheist? Well, it wasn't... So to, to take a step back, it wasn't necessarily... And I think a, a lot of people take this route. So my route is n probably not very unique in that respect. But for me, it was a, an understanding of the cosmos itself, the, the expanding cosmos and the understanding that there could be many, many different worlds out there, many different Earths that have evolved life to sapient life, right? So it's an understanding of evolution, but to the point where there's sapient life. And then they would have their own conclusions on religion of their own kind. There's no, and I would gamble that there wouldn't be too much universality that it was, you know, it was Jesus or it was Buddha, or if it was, you know, the various other, you know, deities that we call on earth. And then it goes back to the concept of faith, right? With religion. So faith is a big aspect of it. So if faith is the belief in something without evidence, what makes your faith better than my faith, right? So if, if faith is more or less on the even 
playing field, then who has the right answer? Well, I think the right answer is no one has the right answer. So that, that, that's where it led down the path of like an atheist, well, first agnosticism, then into more or less atheism. But I think that there's a good more, bond. Yeah. More or less? More or less? Is it more or less atheism? I'd be curious about on, on the less, because as far as I've known you, you've always been pretty more on the more side. Yes, uh, I, I do dabble, like, I do waffle, like, back and forth, like, okay, well, you know, there might be more to the answer in this case. Like, I'm not discarding the whole beginning conversation, like, how, to, how it all began, necessarily. I don't think it's a deity kind of situation, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not saying that that's the right answer either. So there's always a level of doubt, um, because we just don't know. Um, but the atheism is, to me, it's a little bit more of a strong stance of like, well, we just need the evidence and it needs to be there. And, and until we don't have it, we don't have empirical evidence, we move on. And for me, it's kind of a little bit of a hybrid of like, I recognize the philosophy behind some sort of beginning point. I don't know the answer of that. But at the same time, I'm also understanding that we need to go forward with empirical evidence from that standpoint. Um, and as well with like further, like when I've been adventuring in nature for quite a long time, there's a lot of universal connection uh, that's out there that we have in common with like with animals, birds, et cetera, and even with plant life. And so I, to me, that's brought a lo- little bit of level of doubt that there's some sort of universal element to us all that we share together on earth. It's so there, that, that does bring in that we are at the will of nature and there's a common bonding element to nature. But you, on the other hand, you are a druid and much more into the spiritual world of things with nature. And so I'm kind of curious from that perspective because that's certainly the antithesis of probably myself in a lot of respects. But um, <laughs> but I think there's some universality to it. It's just you dive deeper philo- philosophically into that realm um, with also some older text and understanding of the world. Um, so I'm really curious of that because I think you and I would be on the same page that there's a lot of connective nature in nature, right? There's a lot of connectivity within it all. Oh, oh, absolutely. Um, there's actually a term for that in Druidry. It's referred to as like a new, new if, the, it's, it's a Welsh term. I'm horrible with the pronunciation. Mm. I read it more than I say it. Um, <laughs> but it's, you know, essentially think uh, a Celtic version of the force. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's also another type of um, spirit energy connectionness type thing called Awen, which um, is uh, essentially like those when you have those moments, those aha moments, or those moments of inspiration. That is, we would call that Awen. Um, but the from like the spiritual perspective, that's kind of interesting. Is you know I haven't been a pagan my whole life. Um, I grew up in the evangelical church, um, and, um, through my path of actually going through, I even graduated from a Christian school. Mm -hmm. Um, the, it was actually kind of the irony of when I was starting to go into apologetics, which is all about defending the faith where 
I started to explore and understand other faiths for the purposes of being able to demonstrate and prove why they are wrong. Hmm. Well, the part that I found interesting is that many people who leave the faith, that's actually the road that they end up going down when they go and they take a look. Um, at other religions or other faiths? At other religions and other faiths. Yeah. And then then they start to discover the similarities between things. And um, But one of the key things that you, when you were describing religion was talking about how, you know, it's unchanging. It's very, like, essentially dogmatic. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, dogmatic Dru- is the best way to describe it. Oh, yeah. Uh, Druidry is really the, like, antithesis of that. Um, so the I'm a member of the Order of Bards of Eights and Druids. And um, we have, you know, the heart of what we do, we've been following a core set of tenets and beliefs that can be dated all the way back to, like, pre-Roman times. I'm just kidding. That's complete bullshit. Um, <laughs> the uh, modern Druidry spun up in, like, the... Um, uh, you know, I'm not even going to try. I'm going to get the dates wrong. But it's in actually relative recent history. Uh, most of it was based off of kind of the writings of, um, you know, from like Caesar and whatnot. And we know that there were Druids, but the faith very much so um, has evolved over time, uh, which has allowed it to adapt to modern ethics, incorporate modern science, mm-hmm. um, and... Like one of the um, kind of the the key things is when you also mentioned philosophy, it's very much kind of a philosophical path as well. It's almost more so. Um, The spiritual side, I almost just use it as a medium for deepening my relationship with nature and staying in harmony and connection with nature. Sure. As well as a medium for personal growth. Um, like the, the Druidic faith at its core follows, um, what's referred to as the eightfold year or, um, the wheel where you have eight celebrations, um, four of which are, um, astronomical based and four of which are, are, um, agrarian in nature. And so you've got the two solstices and the two equinoxes, um, there's the astronomical ones, definitely, right. like the, the changing of the seasons. Yep. And then the other four are the midpoints in between those. So we've got the most recent one, which was on February 1st, which is Imolk, um, which is the actual first spring celebration. So is this what we call fall spring? Whenever there oh, was absolutely, a, that was man. the meme like, that was out there. So oh, you're yeah. in fall there's, spring. <laughs> there's times where like I, I read things about the celebration and I'm just like, this was definitely originally written in a warmer climate. Uh-huh. Like, I'm like, no. I'm like, are you kidding? This really should be a winter one. Yep. But, you know, it's still dark and cold. Oh, um, I know. <laughs> you have to tell me twice. Was, oh, yes. yeah. Uh, and then you've got uh, Beltane in May, um, which is, you know, the midpoint between spring and summer. Sure. Um, and then you have uh, Lunasa, which is at the beginning of August, um, the midpoint between summer and um fall and then after uh, then you have Samhain also known as Halloween which is in between um, the fall equinox and the winter solstice and so it's essentially ways to just stay in tune with the rhythms of nature 
And right. as a way of grounding yourself to remind yourself that you are part of nature and not just simply observing nature. Right. Yes, I, I really, that, that hits a little home. I mean, that, again, that's that connectivity, right? The exactly. The philosophy of like, for me, when when I'm in nature, so like I've I've been fortunate to have, you know, visited a number of national parks and or just random hikes and and, and seeing wildlife or the, you know, the scene behind the lens and, and just being in that element. And there it's, it's when you're in that moment, when you're in those beautiful spaces and it's just, you feel grounded and that that's that universal aspect of it. Like, Absolutely. I, it's, it's so invaluable to have green spaces available in your life. Um, or this time of year, brown spaces. <laughs> well, that's true. Yes, it's very brown and dull here. Um, but it's still like going out this time of year. It's like I was out on Sunday just hiking through browns. Mm-hmm. And Describe um, browns for some of the listeners. Oh, so browns is Iowa's largest urban forest. Okay. It's in West Des Moines, and it's just shy of 500 acres. And, and it's a forest preserve, right? With Technically, extensive... no. It's actually a park. Okay. So it's not like an actual forest preserve, So, okay. which gives us some flexibility for the restoration work. Sure. Um, but the but it's been protected since the late 1800s. So you have just this huge area of these massive, massive oaks that you really can't find anywhere else in Iowa like right. this, um, especially in a city. And just being able to like just go off trail and um, going into kind of like the deeper um, areas of it once you climb through all the honeysuckle. Hmm. Um, <laughs> although that's recently gotten a lot easier thanks to Polk County Conservation. Yeah, thank you, Polk County Conservation. Amen to that. Um, but you can, like, when I'm in there, I can forget that I'm in the middle of a city. I would agree with you on that. It's it's interesting because it's right on Highway 28 here in in uh, the, in Central Iowa, 63rd Street for you yes. local metro people. <laughs> and it's busy as can be. It's probably one of the more trafficked um, highways. Um, you know, as far as the amount of traffic it gets in Central Iowa, like 141, you know, 63rd Street slash Highway 28. Um, you know, it's not the major interstates, but I think it's one of the, it's probably one of the most busy highways. So you do get a little bit of that highway noise and you forget that you're in the timber. Oh yeah. Like, and as you said, some of the, probably the largest oaks that we probably have here in Iowa, um, with extensive trails, but you've been doing, as you've been doing, so I guess get into real quick for, for folks about what you've been doing out there at a very high level and, I guess take take us through that journey of like, because I, I feel that there was, certainly there was the arrival of what was Brownswood, which was filled with invasive species of, of honeysuckle and uh, and uh, bittersweet that was choking out the uh, a lot of uh, native uh, new growth and, and, and old, and certainly the bittersweet was taking out some old growth along its way. And then now with what you've been doing, and then what and in working in tandem with Polk County Conservation, has that changed your connectivity to Browns Woods? Oh, well, let me take you back. So back before I was a conservationist, back before I knew what conservation was, I was a pagan. 
Um, but the beginning of this journey, it starts at a gong bath. <laughs> very hippie. <laughs> oh, oh, very much so. Um, so <clears throat> I'm still, you know, relatively newish in my uh, path of druidry. And I'm at a local gong bath, which is kind of a, a group meditation where you sit for an hour and meditate while they play these massive gongs and quartz bowls. And it's a lot of fun. Highly recommend it. And Good place to center yourself, I can oh, imagine. Oh, absolutely. So I'm sitting there with, I got my brown wide brim hat on and <laughs> my Applewood staff and I'm just chilling out. And then this... Um, crazy hippie looking gal sits next to me with dreadlocks. I'm like, she looks cool. And so I strike up a conversation. Turned out to be Melissa Dempsey, um, volunteer coordinator for Polk County Conservation. Little did I realize where this conversation was going to lead. <laughs> so I started talking with her, originally looking for a place to be able to like practice my druidry. Looking for like a place to essentially establish a grove where um, I could find, have a place to celebrate those um, eight festivals and, um, just deepen my connection with nature. And she recommended, you know, Brown's Woods. And, um, so I started following them on Facebook and then, um, went to a a moonlight seed harvest every fall up at uh, Chautauqua, the opposite corner of the County, Mm -hmm. uh, which that like, I'm definitely a forest guy, but, Oh, I tell you the, um, there's just something about the prairie. Oh, I agree. Yeah, yeah. There, there's, there's a lot of beauty to prairie. From it, just, I, I wholeheartedly agree. It's one thing to be in the forest during like a sunrise. It's another to be out in the open prairie during sunrise or sunset. Oh, for that absolutely. Matter of fact. Oh, yeah. So I'm out there doing this seed harvest thing, and I'm getting to know Melissa and some of the other um, volunteers a little bit. Um, but then take a step back. This would have been October of 2018, and then again, following on Facebook, I see that um, they had they were in January they were offering a timber stand improvement training, mm. also known as TSI. And so I went and I was just like, "Oh, that's kind of cool." Um, way back in the day, I had actually entertained the idea of getting a degree in forestry. Um, now I'm a software engineer. Long story. <laughs> the irony. Uh, yes. And so I was like, "Oh, this would be kind of cool." Mm-hmm. So I went. Um, check that out. Uh, met another volunteer coordinator named Pat Spain, and found out through there where they turned. They, it was a whole class on essentially how to heal a forest, and I'm like, oh, oh, I want right oh. up your alley. Yeah, I was just like, right oh, up your oh. alley. And apparently, they offered chainsaw training. <laughs> I'd never touched a chainsaw in my life. It sounded terrifying, but at the same time, intriguing. So, um, again, after that, I signed up for chainsaw training, took chainsaw training. It scared me to death. Took chainsaw training again because it scared me to death. Was still kind of like, um, took that a couple times until, cause I mean, on, honestly, like chainsaws are, they will mess you up. They oh, absolutely. They're they're a very useful tool, but oh, they are dangerous yeah, absolutely, if, if, yeah. uh, when, when not used correctly. Mm-hmm. And so I had um, spent some time going through you know, that training and then went out to um, 
a work day. This is where you come out and actually volunteer to do some timber stand improvement and type stuff. And part of that is invasive species removal. Right. And we went out to Yellow Banks. Um, Which has a lot of a lot of invasive species. Oh, yeah. It still is a pretty big issue mm-hmm. over there. And got my first experience you know, using a chainsaw out in the field. Um, Pat Spain walked me through. I actually learned how to cut down my first tree, which is kind of a weird you know, dynamic being a druid, cutting down a tree. Um, <laughs> but when you understand that sometimes you have to cut down trees to help other trees. Well, it's a grander, it's a grander scheme. Exactly. Yeah. Bigger picture kind of it's, matter. Cause a lot of the forests in Iowa, it's a little bit more complicated because most of them are second growth. Exactly. And forests aren't designed to be clear cut and regrown. Correct. Um, you've got, you should have multiple generations of trees interspersed and not everything being the same age. So it, requires some hands-on maintenance that I don't think we've really understood until, you know, maybe the last 50 years or so. Um, and most people still don't understand that concept. Like it took me a while to get a clear understanding that that was the case. Like, oh, oh yeah. Like I highly disturbed ground. I to... didn't learn it until, um, the timber stand improvement training. Exactly. Um, so I'm still not at Brown's woods yet, mind you. Um, so I, did, then did a few other work days on what they referred to as woodland restoration, okay. which is everything from timber stand improvement to invasive species management to you know, all things involved in that. Um, spent quite a bit of time out at Easter Lake um, where they were doing a lot of the work days. So I spent quite a bit of time ripping out invasive species from Easter Lake Um going to volunteer work days with Pat and Melissa, and then met Julie Peralt, the Easter Lake Watershed Coordinator, um, who was heading up this huge thing, which if you're not familiar with the Easter Lake um, Watershed Project, the, you should definitely check it out. Uh, we'll try to remember to put a link in the show notes. Um, Perfect. It's, yeah. Super lot, cool. There's a lot of things going on. There's a lot, a lot of, of things parts. going on. So... As I learned more about how to do the woodland restoration, it kind of, I started having this craving to like, I want to do this out of Brown's Woods. Um, But there was a key limiting factor um, concerning safety where you're not, it's against the rules to run a chainsaw by yourself and rightfully so. And um, I had, once I had gotten to a point where I was authorized to run a chainsaw uh, without staff present, uh, which takes time. Um, and again, rightfully so they wanted to make sure that I'm not going to go, you know, mess myself up. Once I had that authorization, I had to find chainsaw spotters, people who would go out with me. And for some reason, like my pool of friends, like I, that, that, that pool dried up pretty quick. I'm I'm not sure what that's about. Um, (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of, it's kind of like the people who show up whenever you're ready to move. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Exactly. Pizza and beer can only go so far. Right. Right. Um, and so in trying to figure out how I could get a steady supply of, uh, chainsaw spiders, cause I had tried doing some of this stuff on my own, mm-hmm. um, just with loppers and pole saws. And, you know, I am, you know, in my mid thirties, I've been, you know, disabled since like 21 from the VA. I'm a Marine Corps, um, Iraq war veteran. And like my body was just like, <laughs> 
Yeah, let's see how long you keep doing this. <laughs> <laughs> Ibuprofen can only take you so far, young Again, man. yeah, very much so. So, like, I had done some stuff, um, but it was enough that the county was just like, what are you, like, you're like another level of nuts. Like, um, I had already, like, they were already earmarking me for, like, volunteer of the year and stuff. Um, but then I had the idea of, like, well, there's this huge, like, initiative of like the Easter Lake thing. So I'm like wondering if I could do the same thing out of Brown's Woods. Um, and so I had reached out and asked them about, can I lead my own work days? And, right. you know, I got approval. They taught me how to do that. And like, you've been to enough work days, you know the spiel that we give um, all about the safety oh, yes. and stuff. Safety is so very yeah. important, especially with how, chainsaws. Out I don't there. know how many times I've heard the story of the time that Melissa's pants started to melt because of a meth lab. Um, I'm oh. not going to go into detail. If you want to know more, I highly recommend volunteering with Polk County. <laughs> Melissa will be happy to tell the story. Um, <laughs> but um, so then at one point when I started to kind of get this organized and trying to figure out like, all right. So I reached out to Julie Peralt and asked her about um, like, how you know, what are your lessons learned from the Easter Lake project, if you could go back in time, knowing what you know now and start over, what would you do differently? And the one key thing she said was that she wanted to start um, building the volunteer base very early on, Mm -hmm. uh, which isn't something that they did originally and which aligned perfectly. And we're having this conversation at Peace Tree Brewing over a couple of drinks and then we're, you know, kicking around ideas. I'm like, well, if I was going to do this, we'd need like a name or something. And that's where we came up with the idea of the name Stewards of Brown's Woods. Right. Because we're Good. stewards and we'd be of Brown's Woods. Um, <laughs> pretty straightforward. <laughs> pretty straightforward. I'm like, the uh, it, it sounded cool and novel at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Revolutionary. Stewardship program. Oh, oh yeah. And uh, so... Um, to kind of fast forward, um, we had, you know, started, I had this plan of like having weekly events every week. And because it's like, if people know I'm there every week and I get like a logo and create a Facebook page and all this type of stuff, then somebody in the Des Moines area is bound to eventually show up. If you build it, they will come. Yeah, apparently. Kind of mentality. Um, and that that has worked. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like, it's grown. And for a while, we were pursuing um, like nonprofit status and um, like got really actually, we, we technically are at this point an Iowa nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Um, it was originally to fill a gap because the thing with Brown's Woods is you don't have um, the same type of support that you're getting at Easter Lake and Jester Park. Right, um, right. It's And it's not due to lack of desire or passion from Polk County Conservation. They're literally doing as much as they can with the bodies that they have. Um, so our goal for like trying to create the whole nonprofit type of thing was to attempt to expand the reach of right. PCC. Yep. Um, so we had this vision of trying to put together a multi-generational organization that would oversee the protection and restoration of Brown's Woods. So um, what I hadn't anticipated was 
that while going going down the path to build and establish this vision for a long-term organization, what was actually happening is it was becoming a catalyst for change within Polk County Conservation. So Julie Peralt um, changed from being the Easter Lake Watershed Coordinator, got hired by Polk County Conservation as the Volunteer Coordinator, um, and she replaced Pat Spain. Mm-hmm. So the person who was originally giving me this advice is now, I like to jokingly refer to her as my boss. Um, she's the primary, primary one overseeing the stewardship program. Well, they've now pivoted because it turns out there was also the stewards of Easter Lake, which were spitting up at the same time. I didn't really know about them. Um, and they've discovered that instead of having kind of the one-off volunteer events that they had been doing, that they're going to pivot and try to focus and support these stewardship organizations. Very smart. Yeah. Very smart. Um, it's kind of it's kind of like a friends. So like I've I've done uh, so there's like friends of Neil Smith as an example where you have a group of people who are dedicated to the conservation of that of that space, right? Or you have friends of which the state, I call it your sister park, which yeah, is Walnut, Walnut Woods. Woods. And there's friends of Walnut Woods. Oh, yeah. Like, um, I talk with Linda all the time. She's yeah, awesome. Yes. And then there's, uh, with some of the photography I've done, I've gone up to northern Minnesota, and there's a, there's a bog. If you're, familiar, if you're familiar with the North Woods, there's um, basically bogs that they have out there. And there's one that's um, very prominent for owls called Zach's, Zach's Zimbog. And there's a friends group up there is called Friends of Zach Zimbog. And just the amount of like volunteer attention that those organizations bring when they have it is just tremendous. And the, th- the thing is like when you have friendship organizations like that, it, it, it brings in more consistency, which I believe that's what you're going with, with Browns more or less with like a stewardship program. And with like Zach Zimbog, I mean, that place, that area brings in people from all over the world now because of the conservation that they do. It's not a restoration. It's just preserving its pristine beauty, more or less. And it's just, and it's actually, there's private residencies within that area, within that bog itself. So you talk about like a friendship that deals with private land and oh, then cool. public land at the same time is really quite something. Um, but there, because of the uh, conservation that they put into place that makes it, such a uh, sanctuary for wildlife from moose to owls to even wolves um, in that area is is quite something uh, so uh, when I was up there just this winter I met people that were from the from Delaware <laughs> they were over there photographing owls so that was so I guess where I was going where I'm going with it is that I think Polk County Conservation is moving in the right direction with this stewardship process because of the consistency um, and engagement from that standpoint versus like having like the major corporate, you know, people come in. And what I mean by major corporate people, like they have like a volunteer thing and then Polk County Conservation has them for like a full day and then they call it quits, right? Um, Or they just have, hey, we'll just, we're having a volunteer timber stand it's just basically people who show up just once. Mm-hmm. There isn't a consistency. Oh, yeah. You spend like a lot of time training and trying to get them up to speed. And there's still value with those groups. 
hundred percent. Oh, there absolutely. Yeah, there, there's a there's a time yes. and place. And but especially if you focus on using them in partnership with steward groups, right? Then you can like That's hit the, the ground running where you've got a small group of essentially small unit leaders. That exactly. can then help in that space. Exactly. That that's that's the that's the perfect mix where you have consistency, but then you have some upflux. Uh, well, and because you did the same thing um, when you were doing stewards of Brownswood, so you're basically you're kind of more or less independent in tandem with Polk County Conservation, right? Mm-hmm. What the, and I'm going back like maybe like a year. Yeah. But then they would have the timber stand improvement and have like other volunteers that were outside of more or less your core stewards joining you. So I remember, because your core group is usually about, I want to say about six to 10 people regularly, right? Yeah, sounds about right. Um, but then there are days, and then like IEC was out there and so on and so, on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was like, all of a sudden, there's like 40 people that are oh, out yeah. there. So yes, I'm... I'm I, I believe that that consistency and then you have those big flux days, mm-hmm. basically use it to like, if you're doing like bigger projects that day or you're just like, we need to get this section done. So let's oh, just do it for, save it for a flux day. Yeah. Like, so with the changes in Polk County conservation, um, they've, it's like the, per, the need for us to actually pursue our nonprofit status has actually like stopped. So we're taking a step back from that. And essentially becoming reabsorbed by Polk County, um, which then allows us to, the, the part that I'm super excited about is spend less time on administrative planning mm. and more time out in the field, out in the woods, doing what we truly love. Executing. Um, yes, yes, exactly. And um, while we were doing weekly events, the, um, the challenge was, is like, it was actually incredible. Like, I think I went camping maybe once last year, uh, <laughs> mostly because like I had to, like I had to be at Brown's Woods on Saturday morning mm-hmm. every morning, um, and but that was you know there was a purpose to that, and you know I was like I have no regrets about that whatsoever, just because that's what it takes to build something. Yep, but we're looking to kind of like slow down during the summer uh, with the exception of when we get, you know, trail projects and stuff. And then we might right. spin up for a small, like a big bang type of thing. Yep. Like we're those big groups. Um, and then double down and kind of just sticking with where our heart lies and that's on the ecological restoration. So, you know, being basically busy every, t- all the time, except for the summer. Right. <laughs> it's like we go from, you know, Essentially using the poison ivy as a, uh, nah, you're done. <laughs> like, all right, I'll wait till you go away. Um, yes. So the poison ivy and mosquitoes, uh, we fought through them in the past, but it, it, it's brutal. Um, and then the, but for how things were in the past, you know, doing everything by hand, we had to work year round if we ever wanted to have a significant impact. Exactly. But now with not just the volunteer coordinators taking a different approach, they brought out a forestry mulcher known as a Rayco. And it looks great, by the way. Out oh, there. it looks amazing. Where they just took this massive machine and just shredded everything. All that honeysuckle um, and all, oh. those, all those smaller trees that just oh yeah, basically it's need like to go. Super. The, I, rumor has it, keep an eye out for bluebells if we're lucky. 
I hope um, so. That'd yeah. be that'd be a wonderful site because out hiking and, and shooting photographs, um, it was a rare treat when Walnut Woods had some. And then there's been some years where I just don't see them anymore. Yeah. Uh, and it's because of the honeysuckle shading out those areas and becoming more dense. And it, it used to be, um, now there's certain spots still within that forest that does pretty well where there's like more walnut trees that kind of, kind of staked some claim and there mm-hmm. isn't any honeysuckle, but oh, that'd be great if there's bluebells back. Yeah. Um, the back in Brown's woods. We're super excited because this level of restoration, I think, I don't know how many acres they cleared, but it's a lot. Oh, it, and, I can, I could see down, uh, I don't know. It seems like I could see down at least a quarter mile now into that forest. Oh yeah. So the part that's exciting now is instead of just going through and working your butt off through an area year round and fighting off mosquitoes and dealing with like, I think last year at any point in time, I had at least one or two small spots of poison ivy. On oh, um, not and, hard to do. <laughs> no. And, but now it's the, it's my, um, good friend put it, um, with this thing that it sounds like a tank because it's got like the tracks, like construct, like, like a bulldozer. And, we're essentially now practicing mechanized conservation with infantry support. Absolutely. Uh, so we go in now, we get close to the oak, the big oaks and hickories that that machine can't get too close to um, out of risk of injuring them. Um, and it also can't get, you know, close to uh, on st- uh, steeper slopes or too close to mm-hmm. uh, creeks. So we essentially go in and do kind of the more precision cleanup yep. work um, and then take out the honeysuckle in those areas. You're much more of a surgical operation where they're more... Yes. You know, yes. Carte blanche, and it's, uh, Yeah, and it's a lot less... Well, I take that back. I was going to say it's a lot less physically demanding, mm-hmm. except this last Saturday I got stuck in a creek and couldn't get out. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> and that kid is a story for another time. Yes. Um, so, yeah, super excited about that. Um, and then the other piece that, like, for quite a while, actually, my life was really out of balance, where I would come home and basically decide, am I going to be, you know, planning or doing admin work for Brown's Woods, or am I going to do meal planning so I can go grocery shopping? Um, you mean have a life? What? Is, that what you, is that what you're trying to say? Wait, is, is that what that's called? I think having a life, having like a life? where you can relax at home and in the evenings and meal, prep meals and what you know, read, do some tarot, <laughs> tarot. No, seriously, I mean, I was not doing in this, t- not in my house. Oh, I, okay. a, All right. not All in right. my house, young man. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I might have been doing some tarot right before you came over. <laughs> I say it like that, and I said, and then go earlier back about the rigidness, and I say, not in my house. <laughs> Or as my uh, as my grandmother went, once said, it's like no son of mine. Oh, she, she was an in, she was interested in that category. No son of mine. Um, oh, so yeah, it's kind of excited to see where this next year goes, and um, it's like everything is just chugging along beautifully. Great. Um, it's yeah, super excited to see where things go. Um, so what um, what do you got coming down the pipe for your photography stuff? Well, I today actually, um, well, right now, so it's it's basically getting to the latter half of winter, right? Um, gosh, we're what thirty days till now spring, so this is the time of the year 
where I focus a lot on owl photography, believe it or not. Um, usually that's a year-round thing, but now is the best time. Um, so owls are uh, mating this time of the year. They're developing their nests, so on and so forth. So it's really it's a great time to see them. Plus, there's no leaves in the tree. So when they're around, they're much easier to spot. Uh, today was a focus on, um, it was a good spot, um, it been a reliable spot to see them, which are called, uh, it's a species called long-eared owls. Uh, they look kind of similar to great horned owls uh, at a distance, but then when you get closer, you obviously you see the longer uh, tufts on the top of their heads and different um, look to them. But they are actually geographically endangered to the state of Iowa. Um, so geographically endangered, what does that mean exactly? So that means that the species is was prevalent for this state, but because of either habitat loss or whatever myriad of different reasons that this is a native area for them and where they were not endangered, they were basically the, of least concern, has now shrunk geographically to the area. So basically think of like, out of an example, if there was a, on a given year, there was always a hundred of, uh, of this species, right? Uh, but now just in the state of Iowa, they drop down to 20. You know, I'm just using as an example purpose. Um, so that's, that's what is considered more or less, that they're just, they're rare here. So they're now geographically endangered because this is native territory for them. But now their populations have dropped. Um, they are, they rely upon coniferous forests, basically. Um, and so like cedar trees or tall, uh, tall pine trees is what they really call home. And as we know that pine trees are not very common, coniferous forests are not very common in the state of Iowa, and that's been reducing more and more. Um, so there's a, there was a spot where there has been a couple regularly roosting in that area, and I believe they're probably going to be nesting more or less in that area, which is great. So are there more conifers or like pine trees in Iowa originally? Oh, yes. yes. Oh, I always yes. thought that there, that Iowa didn't, wasn't, never had like the evergreens well i mean it's it's not like colorado it's not like the north woods but yes there would be swaths of it oh, okay. uh, originally i mean it would be a mixture of savannah and timber that would include conifer trees is it it's conifer i, I was coniferous conifers I, yeah um, you're right I'm okay sure. but so th that's what it means for the circle back that's what it means for geographically endangered basically it's habitat everything comes down to habitat for wildlife um so it, it's interesting because I've, I've actually, and I've spoke to you about this, but I've actually avoided Brown's Woods from a photography perspective. And the, and the reason being is that, one, the amount of traffic it gets, it's a well-hiked woods for the most part, but, but because of the invasive species that has been present there has really had its impacts on wildlife. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so you would hear, certainly like you would hear owls in that timber, but I'm really curious if, like really, how long, what's like, that? The time, like that's one thing that I'm hope, hoping for the most because they're like I could probably count on one hand the amount of times I've heard even barred owls hmm. out of Browns and the amount the amount that I'm out there I should be hearing them all. The oh you, yes, if they have a regular good nesting spot, then you would hear them very regularly, and and the thing is, is because of the basically the forest floor being covered in honeysuckle, is really 
they're not able to hunt in those woods. They don't have the clearing. So they'll probably be on the edges, but hunting open fields and using it as basically as a, you know, from one spot to the next, but they don't mm-hmm. call Brown's Woods necessarily home. Um, the amount of deer, I'm sure, is still fairly limited in Brown's Woods. Uh, it's probably gotten better. We have. Like, the last couple times I've been out, I've seen quite a few more. Um, I spent, uh, on Sunday, actually, spent some time just sitting underneath the tree, watching a small herd of deer walk across. Yeah. I miscalculated how uh, the leaves how effective leaves would be at keeping my butt dry. They weren't. <laughs> um. <laughs> so, but the, so that's the importance of what you're doing from a stewardship perspective and removing of invasive species is that it's, it's more than just cleanup of the forest and the health of the trees. It also impacts wildlife very much more so. Oh, yeah. Um, certainly, like, the raccoons of the world are not really affected by it. But when you talk about, like, other species that are, you know, very viable for the, for the whole food chain... It's it it's more than just the forest and the trees within it. It's definitely impacting as far as like wildlife. So songbirds, oh, very much well, mm-hmm. very much so. Um, now, like honeysuckle can provide some decent nesting, but actually, it, that's part of what drives the populations down. Is, when is that they right? Nest in there because then they are within reach of possums and raccoons. I see. Oh, they I should be know. nesting up high in the oaks and the hickories. Mm-hmm. That makes um, sense. Where it's harder for the predators to get to them, but. Um, they found in out at Easter Lake, once they got the majority of the honeysuckle out, they saw a significant increase in like bluebirds, for example. Great. Yes. That, well, bluebirds are, are a great sign of a healthy forest. Too. Um, so that's a very good point. The more, more I just learned there. Um, because you're right. I wouldn't hear too many songbirds in Browns Woods. Um, certainly robins, but robins are versatile uh, versatile birds, and they would even eat the berries of of honeysuckle. Uh, come around the fall time when they're, uh, yeah. yeah, and they spread it. Um, <laughs> so, but you're absolutely right. Like warblers, um, you don't you don't hear any warblers in very infected forests with with a lot of invasive species. Too, Orioles. Orioles are, you know, I if I'm in Polk County Conservation Parks, I rarely ever see Orioles. Um, Thomas Mitchell's, uh, park, um, has had some, but as far as like, you know, Easter Lake, I haven't come across one. I haven't come across one in Brownswood. So there's certainly, there's downstream impacts to all that. And so that, that kind of getting ahead of myself as far as what projects I'm working on. Um, right now it's been birds of prey recently. Um, I'm hoping soon we'll have you know, fawns and whatnot. But with photography, the, the beautiful thing about it is that it helps connect an audience that may not necessarily be thinking about conservation, right? Like, oh yeah, um, and they see the beauty of it or they, or, or they see the harshness of it. Um, and it allows them to kind of become more engaged and potentially to maybe hopefully bring someone along that's not as engaged in nature, they may go on like a couple hikes a year kind of individuals, but now they, they, they saw some beauty. It's like, wait, is that my backyard? I can go to that park and go do that. And I can potentially see something like that. To me, that's a win where that person has literally seen my photo and they make a plan to potentially go seek that themselves. Because that, when you, when people are engaged, 
that helps improve our park systems and in, and it expands upon um, land stewardship and and the other downstream impacts that's involved with that. Um, so I'm I kind of view myself I'm just one spoke of that larger grand scheme of the wheel of conservation. Even though it's not like I'm not I don't have the loppers. I'm not the chainsaw person that's out there. Oh, I've got you know. some photos of you feeding stuff into a mulcher, man. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I have got my hands dirty. I have got my hands very dirty on that. But it, it, I'm just saying it's like it's a, it's it's kind of the marketing piece of of conservation. Um and as well, it's it's a regular active part of conservation, um, contributing works to to Iowa Outdoors, to uh, Birdwatching Daily, to other other magazine outlets. That um, is certainly a big part of it from a freelance perspective with photography. So that I hope I answered the question accordingly without too much ramble. But that's oh. been what I've been oh, working yeah. on. It, it's a, always a continuum uh, of different works and what's available out there and. Um, Sometimes you take some hints or, or some some tips that are out there. It's like, ooh, there's some there's some potential to photograph uh, something um, different that I haven't, and um, and go from there. But my focus with a lot of photography, and and this is where, uh, if you've noticed with other people, it, it's always like a learning curve. Where if you're doing wildlife photography, there's a there's a point where you're just documenting the animal, but then you're waiting for an element to capture. Right mm-hmm. now, once I've captured a photograph of a particular animal or, or bird or what have you, now I'm looking for something unique to capture about them. Uh, so that, that's where the art really comes into place. Yeah, and that's, you, you've told me before, I think, that like you really dislike capturing um, like photographs of like a bird sitting on a mailbox. Right. Oh, I, I, I avoid it like the plague if I can, um, <laughs> where basically it's a, an animal with, with, with some sort of like human yeah, that's constructed item mm-hmm. in that sense. I, I really want, I really strive to go for like a natural photograph. Um, I mean, I will concede as far as like, if it's something where it's like a different element, perhaps like, you know, for like, for example, barn owls, I've, I've yet to photograph a barn owl, but it'd be really tough to not capture them with some sort of barn or in some sort of setting that's mm-hmm. rural, right? So I think that's, there's a there's something that's associated with that species that it's like, okay, I'll concede it. It can be on a, an old wooden fence post or in a barn um, kind of example. It doesn't have to be up in a tree or or flying necessarily. Like there's, that's it's, that's part of the species, right? It's ingrained within <laughs> rural America. Um <laughs> Which is its natural habitat, right? That's that's what it calls home. Um, not always, but a lot of times, yes. So, but the most part, ma- vast majority of it is always in some sort of natural setting because I think that's important uh, to show and capture and photograph wildlife in their own natural habitat of what basically their habitat should always be. I mean... There's certainly a, a large amount of wildlife that's in, within urban settings. I mean, coyotes, coyotes will run pe- through people's yards. That's, you know, that's part of life. I mean, we, yeah. sh- we share this world with them. We are part of nature. Yes. Whether or not, even though you have uh, non-native grass growing in your yard and you have a picket fence, 
guess what? You're still part of nature. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Just because you have a trampoline in the backyard where the kids jump on, you're still in nature. Um, so there's certainly an element to that. But again, the circle back and repeating myself over and over again, is, it's the natural setting that's important uh, when it comes to photography. Um, to see the animal truly as what they are um, is, is really, really important. Um, so that's, that's one project. Certainly when it comes to the fall time, um, I'll be working on probably the monarch migration again, which is another big photography project. But that's, that would be a conversation to talk about um, more towards this fall. But if you want to talk about like from a, when you marry up good conservation, like, and then as well as photography conservation, there's two examples that I always go towards. One is the bald eagles. And then the other is monarch butterflies. Both of those sound like they'd be an awesome future episode. Yes. So we'll, we'll talk about that. Yeah. But I mean, there was, a, there, was, there was legislation that was involved on those. There was um, certainly, you know, photography that was involved on from that front, the appreciation and the beauty of the species. Oh, and so that's all yeah. part of the elements of, mm -hmm. of conservation, really, is the boots on the ground, the execution you know, getting government involved when it needs to. And certainly the photography helps kind of like progress that. Um, so that, that, I mean, that's been the latest on the photography front from a, from a long ramble. Um, it, it, it's, 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 it's a continuum. There, there isn't like, it's interesting because it's not like I'm on assignment. Right. Uh, where I'm solely focused on like photographing one species. Cause this isn't your day job. No, this isn't my day job. So my day job, I'm a business development manager um, for a financial institution. So uh, that's during the day. But there's certainly plenty of flexibility that offers for like evenings for me to go out and photograph. Mm -hmm. So like when I clock, when I don't technically clock out, but like when I'm done with the day, then I proceed forward to put myself in positions to photograph um, wildlife or nature in, in general. So... If people wanted to like follow your photography, like you got that Instagram thing or what's your... I got I got the Instagram, I got the Facebooks, yeah. um, or the book of faces. Um so it's just Eric Burson Photography. Um or on Instagram it's Eric photo. Um it's been a fun journey on that perspective too. Um, yeah, you've got some gorgeous stuff. Thank you. Uh and in fact, uh tomorrow uh, we're, you know, talking about eagles as far as like projects or something like that. Then uh, Channel 13 WHO here in town in, the, in Des Moines will be doing a will be doing an episode um, or segment, I should say, on the bald eagles downtown. So you, if you want to come back to like urban and wildlife, mm -hmm. bald eagles will be around the rivers right around this. Well, throughout winter because of just limited open water and the with the roller dams that are there it's just limited open water right and so they're talking about one the amount of congregation of bald eagles along the rivers two the restoration of that species so again from the 1970s and you, all the way up to now like there was hardly any bald eagles it was a rare sight to see a bald eagle uh, because of multiple things including ddt etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, to now we see easily 30 bald eagles along the Des Moines River in downtown Des Moines on a given day, which is, which is fantastic. Oh, so, yeah. 
So anyway, so WHO is talking about that um, then as well um, with the Iowa DNR talking about the conservation of the species. And then myself and another fellow photographer, coincidentally, is also named Eric, Eric Williamson, uh, and I were interviewed by WHO from a photography perspective. So that's another project that they'll be uh, airing um, tomorrow from this recording of this podcast. So that'd be, that's, oh, that's a lot of fun. That's cool. Yeah. We'll have to see if we can get a link to that. Um, yes. They will have a link. So Perfect. Yeah. I'll have to get that in the show notes. Um, so... Other projects, again, a lot of it from a publication standpoint, too. So that's, it's never, the work is never done, which is the beauty of the art itself. It's scalable. Um, and it's what you make of it, which is great. So that and, and volunteer some photography to document what the stewards are doing or Polk County Conservation is doing, so on and so forth, which is pretty fun. Oh, yeah. To document you guys out there. It's always fun to get you out there. <laughs> <laughs> get a little too close to a chainsaw for the camera, but hey, you know. Do it for the gram. <laughs> <laughs> Do it for the gram. How'd you lose your hand, Eric? Well, I did it for the gram. Got the, I got the shot. I mean, there might be a little blood splatter on the lens. Just kidding. Um, yes, for photography. It's fun just to marry up as far as the joy for the outdoors. Oh, and, yeah. Um, and and with, with your connection to the woods, I'll, I'll say this, is that even today I was out photographing long-eared owls, and and I'm looking at them up close through a 500-millimeter lens, which is the big telephoto lenses uh, that you would see. And to see them up close, you kind, you get a connection to them. You understand them a little bit more. And, and I know that sounds so like mystical a little bit, but it's, it's really true. Um, you're, you're in the right company, man. Yeah. No, I, I know I am. I know I am. You know, if, you, if I describe that to some people, like at some uh, dive bar, they'll be like, what is this guy's deal? Um, it's like, you know, you just, you just had to be there. It's one of those you just had to be there. But I win, the, man. I win. Ah, uh, yes. Um, but there's a lot of commonality with us and, and animals. I mean, we are animals, right? <laughs> I was gonna say, uh... but but some people some people have too much of a separation, right? Well, it's easy to forget that it is. Sapienism uh, has made us disconnect from the groundings that we have in common with the creatures of this world, and it's interesting because like. So today was, you know, long-eared owls. And you, you get an understanding of, like, they're on alert. They don't like my presence around or they're just they're content with, with my presence, keeping an eye on me. And then they're, they're hunting, they're looking around, they're sleepy. Whatever, mer- like, whatever feelings that they're, you kind of get a feel for that. Um, even when I was in uh, Rocky Mountain National Park, when I was down in the meadows area photographing moose, um, you get a vibe of how the wildlife is with your presence. Are they comfortable? Are they on alert? Are they, you know, wh- whatever you kind of, you, you just pick that up and you actually get some more intimacy of understanding the animal more, I feel, in my opinion, through a lens. And, and it actually enables you to practice that kind of environment with them. Um, so it, it, to me, that helps kind of bridge that kind of that artificial separation 
yeah that we have with with wildlife um that you know i i i wish i got rid of that ego a long time ago of that we were somehow greater than animals it's like no we have we may be smarter and do some things and more tool use but we are n- not too much not too far distant from what we share we may have more intelligence but not necessarily more wisdom well, I agree with you on that. I, and I tell you, some animals are really good when it comes to understanding their ecosystem and their environment. Like they are, they are on it. Like, whereas we fall short, uh, we're not as, we are detached and, you know, in, in a lot of sense and to the point where it actually doesn't serve us any good to be that detached, especially when it comes to survival. Mm-hmm. Like we we are fish out of water when it comes to survival, unless you are taught survival. Whereas like a lot of these animals are, it's ingrained within their nature right yeah. away. Like like for example, like uh, a lot of sawwet owls, they are they're more or less wintering in the state of Iowa, but they can tell when the weather is turning nicer that they go. It's time to go back up north. It's time to go back into the nesting grounds, and it's like they just know that and they just have and they just have that feeling within them that they know that they need to start making their way back up north just like with bird migration i mean you want to talk about the most beautiful phenomena that we have on nature is bird migration oh oh yeah just like like how do they know like mm-hmm. and it's just built um I mean, it's just hardwired into them, but they are so, you want to talk about an experience that they are so connected with what is going on with the world because they not only take in consideration the temperatures, the, you know, the, the wind, um, where the sun is going, like as far as like how long it's in, you know, how long the sun is out for, um, even moon cycles, Mm -hmm. it really affects, um, affects things. So it's our wisdom or our, our, uh, our intelligence has detached us from a lot of wisdom. And that's one of the things that, like, that's, I think, at the heart of what's drawn me to paganism and druidry specifically, where, you know, you've got the, you know, the eightfold year, but even on a, like, day-to-day basis, like, um, I'm not always consistent with it, but I try to journal where when Mm. I'm journaling... You know, I'm noting, you know, what's the weather outside? What's, um, you know, what phases the moon in? And mm. how are those things impacting my mood? Um, and not so much looking, because I see that skeptic look on your face. Well, and, I, I was going to kind of chime in. You ever notice when there's a full moon that people get weird? Well, <laughs> I mean, yeah. They're even... But I'm still skeptical. Go on. Oh, I mean, there are times even I'm skeptical. Sometimes I'm like, you know, this is all just really advanced pattern recognition, which is what allows us to survive and to evolve mm-hmm. to the point of where we're at. Unless. Unless. Can't prove a negative. Hmm. And that's where. So I often walk this fine line between belief and disbelief. I wouldn't even go so far to say it faith because sometimes I even question my faith. Um, As any rational human being should. But none of that's the point. I look at it as there could be more, there might not be more. Um, But for me, it's more important about 
the mindfulness and being here and now and just, 100%. you know, is the weather and the phase of the moon and the season, all that, you know, affecting my mood or does it even really matter? Because when I'm doing that, I am grounding myself and I am in tune with what nature is doing. Yeah. Um, like the, um, and just, you start to notice, you know, more things. Um, the, here's a question for you. The, and this might've just, this might just be the warm weather messing with my head, but I <laughs> could have sworn I heard some house finches today. Um, I mean, it's kind of interesting. It was, it's like people listening is like, is this a birder? Uh, podcast. <laughs> um, I'm but not. Like, su- I'm not surprised. But like, I've got a a nest that's been on my little patio deck thing. It's been there for a few years, and every year, house finches come back and use it. I'm sure. Uh, and so I'm very familiar with what they sound like. Sometimes I'm just like, would you shut up already? Um, well, there's there's been some earlier arrivers. I, I I mean, I guess I don't know enough about house finches. Like, do they show up sooner than most birds? Do they not? But I have noticed that there has been some returning. Um, bird species to Iowa. Yeah, it has uh, been a mild, much more milder winter. It which... has. I'm I'm worried though, is that with this basically this false spring more or less mm-hmm. that we're going to chill back down, and is this going to impact bird populations? Is it going to impact other populations? Because we're going to go from we're going to go from this warm up. And, you know, everyone's kumbaya, rainbow, sunshine, and puppy dogs. It's, you know, springs here to all of a sudden we're going to get this hard freeze and uh, back to cold. And basically the prematureness, is that going to affect things this year? Because we've seen years in the past where we've had this more or less premature prequel to spring and then it chills right back down and kills a lot of things. I mean, we always kind of fear about that with, you know, people gardening right Mm -hmm. where it's like okay we've planted it and then we get this unexpected frost more or less and then you got to cover your plants or what have you so it's easy to do because do you know what the average date of last frost is what is that may 15th is that right may 15th that that late average date of last frost so see i I thought it was like in first week of april no oh that's what gets most people Mm. like um if you're smart like I guess I'm not smart, guys. The uh, yeah, make sure you, like <laughs> you can do it earlier. Most like the late frosts, they aren't like the super hard ones. Um, you can like if you've got tomatoes out and okay. you're you see a frost warning, literally a bed sheet draped over them and their cages yep. is enough to protect them. Uh, oh it. yes. Oh yeah. I, my my mother, um, we had uh, gardens out back, mm-hmm. and I just remember it was be like bed sheets. Yeah. Um, but what gets you is that. If you've got them out there and you're busy and you're not thinking about it and you're not paying close attention, you're not doing, you know, you're not being mindful and not staying connected to nature, mm-hmm. you can easily be like, ooh, it's a, you know, you go out in the morning and you see, you know, that frost in your windshield and then you remember your tomatoes and then that pit in your stomach, you're like, oh, no. Mm. I, that's, that might be the voice of experience. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yes, wisdom of experience. Oh, um, I heard a, a great quote from, uh, it's actually Doctor Who, one of my favorite shows. Nerd. Ah, thank you. Um, <laughs> where one of the characters was making a, 
So first, there was a couple of characters. Uh, one was uh, said something legitimately like insightful and wise. And the other character looks at him and goes, since when did you become so wise? And their response has stuck with me ever since I heard that. And it was just like everyone else. I had some really bad days. Mm, haven't we all? That's, that's a good way. That's good putting it. Yeah. We always learn from experiences, both good and bad. Usually the bad sticks with us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we're just over an hour. Um, we could keep going and... We probably will. Let's keep going. In the next episode. Ah. I'm always <laughs> up for, let's make this a four-hour podcast. No, I'm kidding. The, uh, um, you know, every once in a while, I am down for like the two-hour-long podcast. For sure. Oh, yeah. Depends on how long the drive is, right? Oh, um, exactly. You got that You got that CarPlay going, you just plug in the phone, put on mm-hmm. a podcast. You're cruising down the road on a road trip, but um, definitely more to come on oh. this. Oh, yeah. Um, because, I mean, we're just right now, when, when we are recording this here, uh, it's February 21st is when we're recording this. There's more to come. I mean, w- because we're going to be coming into spring. Um, and it'll be really interesting to hear about what that restoration took place at, at, at Browns Woods. Mm-hmm. What that has done to now, basically, it, this will be a brand new spring for Browns Woods, a spring that Browns Woods hasn't probably seen for a long time. And what I mean by that, not just the weather, but now that they've cleared a lot of the invasive species out at a healthy chunk of it, I'm really curious of what that forest floor the, will, will do. The uh, phrase you're looking for is ever. Um, okay. This is like, this forest has never seen this level of restoration before. Ever. Ever. Okay. Thank Adi- you. Yeah. Ad- additionally, <laughs> yes, if the weather plays out right, Polk County Conservation has plans to do a prescribed burn, just like you see on prairies. Yes. But through the forest over approximately 150 acres. Wonderful. It, it's due for a burn. Oh. It's due oh, yeah. for a burn. That will release nutrients. And the, the big thing that I know some of the longtime experienced conservationists and ecologists are excited about is considering how long Browns Woods has been around and has been undisturbed, like what's in the seed bank that's just been suppressed. They're just itching to find out what comes back. And it's just like, it could be amazingly exciting or it could be a huge disappointment. We discover we need to figure out how to introduce new species. Right. Like we don't know. It's just like, Oh my gosh. Yes. So I'm really curious. (laughs) I'm really curious of, Basically, uncharted waters, more or less, for Browns Woods. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's all for the. It, it will always be for the better, um, and it it may not be immediate. It may take a couple of years, yeah. right? Uh, and that's that's a lot yeah. of things that people need to understand. And that, you know, I've learned, and you've learned, is that conservation is a multi-year, multi-decade process, multi-generation. Oh, absolutely, yeah, multi-generation for sure too. Um, and it takes time. Mm-hmm. And I, I think in today's society with everything being more, and I'm using air quotes here, microwaved, where they <laughs> expect immediate results, right? And that's not conservation. No. And unfortunately, what I, I hope that people understand, and I'm not good getting too much into the politics of it. We can in later episodes. But you have bureaucrats and politicians, you know, of either, of either alignment that they have, they are allocating money for 
conservation or not based upon immediate results. Yeah. And and that and that's and 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 folks is things take time for true conservation to take place. And if you have someone that is a politician or someone that's like, well, we're just not getting our, you know, our bang for our buck basically. We're using taxpayer money. It's like you have to understand it takes time. Just like raising mm-hmm. a child, right? You know, you have a public education system if you're expecting the kid to be ready to be a college graduate from kindergarten, you're what planet do you live on? Yeah. Um, or to go back to the, like the nature, mm-hmm. um, you know, metaphor or not, like when you plant a young Oak, you won't sit under its shade. Yes. Correct. Very correct. Yes. You, Yep, it takes time, and it and a good oak where you sit under its shade takes how long, Brian? What'd you say? Um, well, oaks live like a good, healthy oak. I think can live somewhere between four and six hundred years. Right, but in order to even get to the benefit of of a oak tree shading, you would probably how many years would you think that would be? Forty years. It actually it depends quite a bit. Um, Let's just say it's perfect conditions. Perfect conditions. Um, I had imagine you might like, it would still look pretty young at 40 to 50. Okay. Like you'd have a trunk that looks like most like maples in a neighborhood. Okay. Um, but like the oaks and browns where when you hug them, your arms don't even go halfway around. Those are century at least. Oh, easily. Yeah. Easily. Oh yeah. So... Yes, it's it's a long it's a long mm. process. Um, so it'll be it'll be interesting as we talk later on this throughout this year of what Browns Woods looks like, and and I think that it'll be a a great case study I think for Polk County conservation and as well as other conservation just to mm-hmm. see what what has been done there and yeah. the long term. I mean, just because they clear cut it now. Doesn't mean that the war is over with invasive species. No, oh no, because the seed viability on those things. I think I. My understanding is I believe like we'll have to keep an eye out for honeysuckle seeds for a century. Mm. Um, that they could pop up. Now I am also curious that if natives get reestablished and we get that healthy balance, if that might suppress some of that stuff sure. or. I'm not entirely sure, but regardless, I look forward to the day when volunteer efforts primarily revolve around hunting for invasive species sure. rather than having to do active management. And I it, wouldn't it, and this is just top of mind. So I think of like pheasants, for example, they're mm-hmm. an introduced species. They are. They're not native, but they're not invasive. Um, I think that would be a good win as like a, as a consolation to... Um, if like honeysuckle, which is invasive now, mm-hmm. becomes basically to the status of non-native. The unfortunately, that's actually impossible. Is it based okay. off of the species if left unchecked? So if okay. there's a single plant and you just leave it alone, it will take okay. over. Like this, there's the reality is is we have this is yeah we're gonna be fighting this battle. A long for time. generations. Yes. Um, but it's not like we have to wait generations 
to see the benefits of it. Exactly. We will see, we will see transformation in our lifetime. Very, you know, just within the next several years. Um, but the, to be able to, you know, kick our feet up and being like, Oh, yeah, we're done. That's <laughs> never going to happen. Um, but if, you know, if more and more people volunteer, you know, many hands make light work. Exactly. Um, exactly. And, and I'll be, I'll be honest. Like one of my favorite things to do is to hunt for invasives. Hmm. Uh, because essentially you are just hiking, you are just exploring the woods, attempting to get lost and finding areas that you haven't been to, that you've never seen before, haven't been to in a long time and being like, Hmm, what's going on over here? Yeah. Um, and I've found some crazy stuff, like crazy stuff. It's so cool and mildly terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's interesting because uh, I even talk to friends who are um, nature enthusiasts, um, who are avid hikers, um, backpackers, campers, um, you name it. And I, and I tell them about like what you're doing and just honeysuckle in general um, or, you know, or bittersweet, basically invasive bittersweet yeah. and what it's doing. They had no idea. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why, so education is so vital Oh, when absolutely. it comes to this effort, it's 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 obviously the execution is the biggest step, but educating the public and educating people is just as vital just to get things get the catalyst just going. It's just that's the that's a big part. It's like because people look at me as like I like have antlers growing out of my head um, with okay. some of it. It's like really horn god carnunos <laughs> <laughs> yeah who who the horn god Karen oh what <laughs> mythical invisible creature is that um it's a god <laughs> oh is it like jesus i'm kidding i'm kidding um uh, yeah no i'm <laughs> like there the uh it's always interesting when there's overlaps in uh-huh. mythos words. Yeah. You know, I'm, like, I'm being very tongue in cheek. Oh, I know. Being, I know. I probably made some people upset with that comment, but um, I put... Don't worry, I'll, I'll sacrifice them later <laughs> with my druid ceremonies. <laughs> you're going to destroy an innocent animal for this? Okay. No. Uh, well, I guess you are an animal, but you're definitely not innocent. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Depends on which category. I mean, come on. Um, it, it's It's... Yeah, I, I'm always skeptical of, of stuff like that. But it's, it's oh, interesting. Absolutely. It's oh, interesting yeah. stories <laughs> and morals, though. I will say, like, as a mm-hmm. you know, to give some credit, um, there are some morals, but also keep in mind too that some of that th- some of those things can be dated. And I always believed in like philosophy is always evolving and changing with oh, with, with with things as our further under. And I think. That is such an important thing, and if if you are a religious person, you know this isn't necessarily attack on you. Is that I, I I would say that the beauty of life is where you're consistently understanding things more and more, because I think that if you've drawn a conclusion of well it it it's this because it 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 is what it is, I think it kind of does that a little bit of disservice. To not only our understand the world, but to you, because you're holding yourself back because you just quickly concluded. 
Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. No, I, I, and I'm not saying that, like, is there certain things out there that are easily easy conclusions? You know, I'm not disregarding that. I'm just saying that the understanding of, of our world is all we, we have so much. No, we have so much knowledge, but there's so much more to go. And that's the beauty of it. It's, it's kind of the beauty of the unknown in that sense. And that's just think that we got it all handled and we all, got it all figured out and we just, we just move on with our lives. I, I think really just does us a disservice. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so for, for those who are faith, who, you know, who have faith or, or religious, that's all that I would say is just like, don't conclude on something so quickly. Um, they think that you have everything handled that that's where that that was my first hang up with religion uh, yeah for for me religion or spirituality when done correctly is less about um control and having all the answers and all about driving personal growth oh i would agree with you on that i i think that's i think that's universal whether mm-hmm. you're you know, if you have spirituality, if you, if you are spiritual or if you're not, because I know plenty of people who see people think that like atheists are just scientists who are just like black and white. And that's, that that's really the antithesis, antithesis of what atheist agnosticisms are, because they say that, well, I don't know the answer, but I'm going to seek to find the answer. And I think that's, I think that's the beauty of it because you think of like a Stephen Hawking as an example. The man then, he didn't see everything black and white. He took the evidence that he had, but he was still searching for better answers of the world and, and understanding of the world through his ways of, of things. things. Same thing with Carl Sagan. I, I think there's a real beauty of like saying, I don't know. But I think in our culture and in our society and, and in other cultures and societies too that we're kind of taught to like, we need to have the answer. Like in school, yeah. like you're, you're embarrassed by not knowing the answer. And I, you know, not to get into education ethics too much, but I believe that there, we should encourage our children and people in our lives, uh, regardless of age, to say it, to make sure that tell them that it's okay to not know, but I'll seek to find the answer. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like the, um, like even in my like spiritual path when I'm, you know, studying something and for me, religion always steps aside Mm -hmm. for science. Um, the things that I generally use like religion and spirituality for are mostly just to, you know, it's almost like a metaphor for providing a level of continuity that allows the my limited understanding to, you know, stay connected with nature. Um, you know, what, you know, why is some strange thing in nature happening? You know, is it the divine? Sure. At least until I get the book on it. Right. And then it's like, even even back when I was a Christian, I would always kind of describe as science is the how, where religion can be the why. Okay. Where not everyone needs a why. 
But if you struggle to connect without the why, then use the why as a metaphor that allows you to bridge the gaps, to be able to have a deeper, Mm -hmm. more meaningful relationship with your existence. You know? Right. But as a, as to kind of chime in just a little bit, I think where we need to be mindful of is that we don't draw conclusions of, um, I call it the God of the, of the gaps where some people like, if it's an unknown area, Mm -hmm. then they default to it's a God. Oh yeah. And I think we, I think from an ethical discussion, at least from an agnostic slash atheist perspective, is that we need to be mindful of not because of a gap of knowledge doesn't always constitute God. It's just, we just have a gap. Correct. And we just need to pursue to find understanding. Oh, absolutely. So I, that, that, absolutely. That's where I just wanted to make sure that like for, for the audience listening to what you were saying, which is fantastic, that... Some people go to the God of the gaps and it's like, that's not what Brian's saying uh, from that standpoint. So just to kind of clarify that, because that's sometimes that's how like where you have, you see these debates out here where you have an atheist and, 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 you know, someone who's religious debating and the, the religious person typically attacks the, the atheist from the God of the gaps argument standpoint, which is, you know, it's a flaw. It's not, it's not, yeah. it's an illogical argument. So um, but anyway, sorry, that was a quick, I just wanted to make sure oh, to preface no. that for the audience. Well, and, and at the core of everything, religion done right does not attempt to proselytize mm. or to convert. Right. The, um, it's on I, its, it has to be on its own merits. Yes. Is that, yes. I will never try to convince someone to become a druid. That is the antithesis, actually, of... If we had That's doctrine. weird because Brian knocked on my door the other day and he had a name badge. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Would you like to join my grove? <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. But yes, I interrupted. Continue. Oh, but um, you know, to you know, accept people where they're at. I have friends who are Christians, mm-hmm. and Same. for for them, their Christian faith, you know, helps drive who they are. It helps them become a better person and that's beautiful absolutely oh yeah and like more power to you like you do you right exactly because because i think it's because of your stance and kind of my stance on is that it's i don't have an ego i don't have a stake in the game yeah, exactly. Whereas, like, unfortunately, on the other, there's militant on both on an atheistic standpoint and a militant side on religious standpoint. Oh, right? yeah. Oh, yeah. Even in the in the supposed to be the you know paganism is generally viewed as you know a very liberal, and for the most part, it is. Mm-hmm. But you know, there are militant pagans as well. Sure. And just there are you know extremes on all sides. A- absolutely. So it's, it's more of like you have to be cognizant of is that you could become the enemy that you're fighting. Right. And so for an atheist, you, you don't, again, coming back to your comment uh, of it should be on its own merits. Mm-hmm. And so with, you know, from a, an atheist perspective, you shouldn't be bastardizing and, you know, you know, being harsh upon those who are religious. Unless they, I mean, now if they're attacking you, you have the right to defend your argument. Right. But you shouldn't seek the fight. Right. You shouldn't be like out there, um, this and that, 
I mean, but you have the right to defend yourself in an argument setting. Uh, and I'm, I'm not going to go into like the world of like arguments, like of religion into like government spaces, because that's a whole different argument. I'm oh, just saying yeah. from a one-on-one perspective, it's not your fight to, to fight. You can have a, you know, a, a nice conversation about it and, and healthy debate, but it shouldn't be from a militant perspective because it has to be on your, its own merits. Same thing with a religious person. If you're, I tell you what, the, the, the thing that I hate the most is when someone's knocking at the door telling me about religion oh, yeah. um, or telling me that I am a uh, unethical person because I don't have religion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for a myriad of different reasons, it's like, no, you trying to pound a, you know, try to shape your world to, you know, try to shape who I am based upon your, your, it's, it's, it's an ego thing. It's your ego and it, your milit your militant ego to shape the world around you, um, from that standpoint. And you're not going, it, it will come back to you a thousandfold and, and, it, it, you just don't win. And that's where, I think that's why that the world has become... Threefold, maybe. What's that? <laughs> um, but I, I think that's... My Wicked Peeps out there uh, get that reference. Mm. Uh, but I, I, th- I think that's, well, one, because of our understanding of the world um, and the universe, but two, because of the militantism of religious segments and religious uh, and just religions in general has really deterred people away from religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why you have an, an increasing number of, because there has been a lot of militantism. Um, you see it with, you know, with, you know, uh, legislation or attempts to undermine, um, you know, the LGBTQ community, mm-hmm. um, plus community. Um and now we're we're of an understanding that like uh, that worldview is very archaic. Yeah. And guess what? Now we start questioning everything else that you've been teaching, and this and that. And oh, by the way, we've been, we've been actually reading your text, and ooh, there's some really dated things in there. And what else is not ethically lining up? So it's like. So what I would say from the religious standpoint is your militant militantism that you hate about militant atheism. You know, it, it comes back and bites you too. Oh yeah. So. Yeah, the uh, super actually excited with on the uh, LGBT front. Um, are you familiar with the queer hikers of Iowa? I am. Well, no, I'm not. Um, um, so but I be- yeah, they're a relatively actually new group. Okay. Um, they're similar kind of. Um, they've actually done some pairing with. Uh, have you heard of uh, Wonder Women? I have. Uh, they're a great organization. Oh, yeah. Uh, and they've been around for a few years now, and I think they've uh, expanded ownership of of that organization. But yes, I've I've heard of them. They're great, um, great in that space to encourage women into the outdoors and various uh, projects and hikes and things that they're doing. It's wonderful. Yeah, the Queer Hackers of Iowa is kind of starting to do the same thing for the LGBT space. Wonderful. Uh, even when I first really got into conservation, just like back in 2018 or so, um, there wasn't even any of that either. Um, and so it's just been ni- nice and kind of refreshing just even over the last few years, kind of starting to see some of the stuff kind of, you know, come out of the closet, so to say. Sure. Um yeah, it's 
super exciting. Well, and, and, you know, talk about like connecting communities, right. And, and, and encouragement of people who share common backgrounds, but with the outdoors itself. Mm-hmm. And that, that's exactly. And like, that's wonderful. So it's no longer just like, you know, the straight male myself, like backpacking, you know, portaging the, the boundary waters and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Now it's like... Now you're toting along this queer pagan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm with a queer pagan. or, But the, again, that's the beauty of understanding, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's the whole philosophy of diversity, uh, bridging the, the, the once gaps that were there, right, of understanding one another. Um, but as well as finding a community where you can be embraced of who you are, and that's important too. Um, and the out, gosh, the outdoor space really allows that because there was a reason why that, you know, you know, it used to be kind of more geared stereotypically for guys to go out into the woods and do their thing, right. To go out and camp together and what have you. But now it's because you kind of allows you to be a little bit more wild and free, Mm -hmm. right. And to be kind of the person that you are and what better way to champion who you are, if you are of the LGBTQ plus community, uh, or, or of the woman's experience that just share that kind of that communal experience, right? Um, the be wild and free of who you are yeah, in I, that setting. I recently learned actually, no, it was not recently. It was just today. Just um, today. Just today. I learned that like 50, 60 years ago, people of color were not, were not allowed into some state and national parks. Wow. Wow. That blows my mind, actually. I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised, but that still blows my mind. And, and what people have to realize, like what you just said there, 50 to 60 years ago, people of color not allowed into national parks or state parks to enjoy what we enjoy today. Um, that's our grandparents' generation for millennials. Mm-hmm. They were part of that, like that part of that American experience. Like that. And when I think about the, like you think about, we always like to talk about like the healing powers of nature. Mm-hmm. That's essentially withholding that. Oh, hundred percent. And I mean, it's not essentially, it is withholding that. And it's like, when I saw that today, it was just gut wrenching and, like, okay, we've got some work to do. Yes, and that, that's where that piece of, when you know, we talk about, like, with Brown's Woods, it'll take multi-generations to restore. Mm-hmm. Guys and gals, like, everyone, like, and that is, with, with that concept right there, I mean, generations ago, like, just two generations, basically two to three generations ago, that, you know, again, that was our grandparents' generation, mm-hmm. that that was still going on. Yeah, there were people alive who weren't allowed. Exactly. They weren't allowed to go into a national park. Yeah, and that, and that affects, that has its downstream impacts. So that, gosh, I can't believe, I, I mean, again, I'm, I'm surprised, but I'm not at the same time yeah, with, that, with that detail. Because you would think that at least everyone gets to enjoy the green spaces, but... Now, like thinking back, like, you know, city parks and stuff like that, that people of color were not allowed to even from the water fountains. And I mean, that's an entirely different conversation, but it's like, you know, you have 
people people of color that can't enjoy a national park because of some bogus feelings of of race um, and inequality. But yes, the yeah, heavy stuff, man. It is the um, but like. I think the the part that's just it just it when I think I've heard it all the uh it just and I think that's the thing is a lot of it it's going to take time like first learning about the invasive species understanding this is a problem we need to pivot we need to change directions we need to take care of this mm-hmm. that's step 1 and I, that's where we are with a lot of the civil rights stuff Um, step two is, all right, let's start the restoration process. And, you know, in some areas we're doing that, some areas we're still learning, but to continue to use the honeysuckle as a metaphor, like even once it looks like everything is under control, there's still that hidden seed bank right underneath the surface that we have to keep an eye out that if we leave it unchecked, it will literally completely revert. Yep. We will always have to stay on top of it to make sure that we are going down the right path. Exactly. That's that's the diligence and non-complacency aspect. Non-complacency. Well, we are just over at an hour and a half. We had talked about wrapping this thing up about 30 minutes ago. Uh-huh. Good old-fashioned Midwest goodbye. <laughs> oh, how are the kids? <laughs> oh, you betcha. Oh. <laughs> Let me sneak past you to get the ranch there, Brian. Um, but it, it's it's been a wonderful conversation. Um, so I, I I want to say thank you for all those that have listened to us ramble for an hour and a half now. Um, certainly, much more episodes to come. Uh, you know, tune in next week uh, to catch our next episode. Um, and. Uh, appreciate your time and listening to us whether you're on the car in the car listening to us working out um or just listening at home it's it's been a pleasure uh, pleasure speaking to you all have a good one take care